0: Okay, so today we are in Acts chapter 21. The title of today's sermon is Run to Win. Or, if you like, Love to Death. But I like Run to Win better. But both themes are going to be looked at. Um, Just to kind of catch you up to where we're at before we read, we've been looking at Paul's third missionary journey. He went on three missionary journeys that we know of in the book of Acts. And we've been on his third one. It started in a place called Antioch. And he he kind of went up from there. There's this whole Mediterranean Sea, if you know the map. He kind of went up from there. And he went through kind of north and then west through these regions of Galatia and Phrygia. And kind of revisited churches that he had planted before on a previous missionary journey. He came to Ephesus and ended up spending like three years in Ephesus. He he started out teaching in the synagogue. And from there he went to this other school where he was able to teach more freely without the persecution of the jews and he was there for three years and it says that through his ministry there the gospel went to like all of that area of Asia to the point that any businesses that were built on idol worship for other religions they were all losing serious money and they were causing riots because Jesus the gospel was becoming so popular everyone was getting saved no one was buying these idols anymore to worship them these businesses were failing it was a huge problem for the business world the economic sector was was struggling Wall Street was in trouble And so he was there for about three years, and then after that, he kind of continued on, and he went around further west, kind of up and around, got into Macedonia for a while, made his way down to Corinth in Greece, and I'm mentioning that now because in Corinth is where he wrote the book of Romans, which we'll mention later on, because it's important to today's text. But he came down to Corinth, was there for a few months, wrote to the church in Rome, and then he continued, he actually had planned from there to sail back to Jerusalem, But he heard of a plot from the Jews They were waiting at the port to snatch him. So instead of going that way, he went back up through the way he came, ministering back to those churches. And the cool thing with that part of it was that might have been like, in Paul's mind, uh, like a hurdle in his way. He wanted to go to Jerusalem. He's forced to go back this way. But on the way, we got to be introduced to a whole lot of early church stuff because we got to see how the church operated. We got to see when they met, how they met, what the format was. We got to talk about elders. And that all happened because he went back up this way instead of that way. So what the enemy was trying to do by using the Jews to stop Paul and arrest him, God used for our good today. So he he went back up through that way. And in every city he went to, prophets kept saying to him, If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound and imprisoned. And they'd say, therefore, please, Paul, don't do it. We don't want to lose you yet. And Paul said, nope, I'm a bondservant of Christ. I am called to serve him. He's called me to go to Jerusalem. I'm not only willing to do that, but also to die for the name of Jesus. I'm called to this, and it's worth everything. And I'm going. And they're like, okay, God's will be done. So this whole trip kind of became like a farewell tour. If he was a band, this would be like the farewell tour of Paul. He's going around, visiting all the churches he planted, kind of saying goodbye to all of them. He had called the elders of Ephesus to himself to give him kind of final parting words. And that's where we pick up today. After they kind of, even Luke, who wrote this book, said to Paul, please don't go. Paul's like, what are you doing weeping at my feet? Like, I'm doing this. Stop telling me to stop. So they all said, okay, God's will be done. And that's how last week ended. So we pick up now in Acts 21, verse 15. After these days, we got ready. Again, we, because Luke is writing this book, but he's also part of Paul's team. So we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea, where they were, also came with us, taking us to Manassan of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing, with whom we were to lodge. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, and the following day Paul went in with us to James... And all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began to relate, I'm sorry, when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who had believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. This is a Jewish custom. Take them and purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what was strangled, and from fornication. Then Paul took them in, and the next day purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification, until a sacrifice was offered. For each one of them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text and we ask you today to do a miraculous work in our hearts to become people of love. And people that are committed to the gospel and to the family of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me. What? In verse 15, um, it says like some... And like, there's a lot of things pointing out that it's like... Those are the kind of questions you should wait till the end to ask because I might clarify that in my teaching. Thanks for the question, though. We'll get to it. Okay, so the first part of this, what I want to share with you guys that I've noticed that kind of stuck out to me as being really neat was just this sense of hospitality among Christians. We see here that Paul had been in this church, and here's now the answer to your question: Paul was in this church. And because they were planning to go somewhere else, they actually planned ahead and worked out where Paul was going to stay when he got there. And some of the disciples from this church actually went with Paul to take him there. They really took it upon themselves to carry Paul through this part of the journey. And I think that's a really great sign of of hospitality. I mean, look how they cared for each other. They planned ahead. They found out who he could stay with. And they, they got help along the way. They took them there. And this is just a, it's a great example of, of Christian love when we care enough about one another to go the extra mile for one another. That's what you do when you really care about somebody. When you're a Christian and you know other Christians that are, they feel called to something and there is something within your means to help them, what you do when you care about people is you do that to help them. You ask yourself constantly, what can I do to show other people the love of Christ through me? And that's what we see here. Um, and it's just a great example, and it just stuck out to me like, wow, these disciples, you know, they've got families, they probably have jobs, they've got a church they're a part of, and they literally just left it all to go with Paul and, and physically bring him to this person he was going to stay with. Maybe because Paul didn't know where the guy lived, who knows, but they, they went with him just to take him there. That's just a great thing. Um, it, it reminded me for some reason of a guy named R.C. Chapman. I've talked about him before, he's an 18th century, 19th century pastor in London. Um, he was fondly referred to as the Apostle of Love, because not even within his own denomination, all the pastors in the area be- began to know this guy as someone who gave of himself for Christ interdenominationally. Like, there was even at one point in time this big division that was happening in the church, some big argument. And even though R.C. Chapman was on one side, and there was one main guy on the other side, These other people tried to go to this man and talk bad about R.C. Chapman, and this guy said of R.C. Chapman, leave that guy alone. We talk of the heavenlies, and that man lives in them. So even though he was very serious about theology, he lived a life of love that gained everyone's respect. And he actually, he used to be a lawyer, and he sold his business, and he bought this huge house and he had turned it into a ministry of hospitality. He told every church in the area, again, interdenominational. if you have any pastors that need a place to stay, or any missionaries coming into town, I will put them up, and he would seriously serve these guys. They'd come into his house. He'd ask them to keep their boots outside. He'd he'd get up before them, do his own time with the Lord, then scrub all their boots, then make all their breakfast, then lead a Bible study for them, and just to talk to them and minister to them. It was part of his calling was just to serve others in that way. He lived the whole life of just giving and loving, but he still took Saturdays to do woodworking. So no matter, it's a good point to, to keep in mind that even someone like that you need time to yourself to recoup. That's why Christ would go away with alone with the Father and pray. So even when we have these kinds of, these senses of I'm going to do this thing for God, I'm going to give my all for God, don't forget that. Within that, you've got to have some sort of strict schedule that makes sure you're not losing it in the process. But still, R.C. Chapman was a man of love. He lived a life of love, and he lived this, this, this sense of hospitality that I think we as Christians could really learn from. And that's what we see here in this text too. It just reminded me of that. Obviously, something like what R.C. Chapman did is a unique calling. We shouldn't just try to always emulate exactly what somebody else does. We have to find the ways that God can use us with our gifts and our desires to bless others. But I do think we can think of men like that, or we can look at the disciples here and how they were so hospitable and so caring for Paul's ministry, and we can just ask ourselves, are there things that I could be doing easily that are within my means to do to help somebody else in, in their calling? that we all should be asking that question. That's one of the signs of true discipleship and true believers when Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And it's like Paul said in the last chapter, it's more blessed to give than receive. And so Paul even said, my example among you is I'm going to work, even though I could have gotten paid by you, I'm going to work and I'm going to give as an example to you that you should work and you should give because Christians should be about being, giving, giving the man your coat, giving, you know, letting him strike your other faith, like all those, all those metaphors that... that that the parables Jesus like someone's going to punch you in the face, you know, turn your face, let him punch that side. If he's going to sue you for this, give him that too. If he asks you to walk a mile, walk two. What Jesus was saying was, go the extra mile, do the extra. How can you help people? How can you show them love? So it's a good example, hospitality among Christians. And it's kind of a bigger theme of love, kind of weaving throughout all this text. So as we keep going, we're going to still kind of stay on the topic of of love and hospitality, but kind of focus more on. On love and humility and giving up things for the sake of the gospel. So you'll notice in these first couple verses as well that when they got to Jerusalem in verse 17 it said, the brethren received us gladly. That's actually a very interesting point. Not just because they received them gladly but because of what we read next. We read that actually Paul's ministry was causing problems for the church in Jerusalem. Because he was out there getting Gentiles saved and he was out there doing so much for the kingdom out there and actually teaching very precisely about the, the, the reason for the law but how it falls short and what the purpose of grace is in faith and salvation through faith. But that was somehow getting back to Jerusalem as if Paul was saying the law is bad, Jews aren't important and so that was causing a problem for the church ministering in Jerusalem. So the fact that they received him gladly, even in the midst of all that, is again a sign of, of humility and, and love for the, the brotherhood, love for the church, even in the midst of maybe some conflicts. Um, and we're going to talk more specifically about that conflict in a second. But before I get there, I just kind of want to point this out in more detail. This situation happens today as well. You'll have different churches, different ministries that have kind of different focuses and different convictions. And sometimes you might think that this means these two are opposed to each other, when actually we're still on the same side. And I'll give you an example of this. Okay, so one of my greatest friends right now is this Anglican priest. So I have certain beliefs about the way church should be structured. I have certain beliefs about how worship services should be held. I have certain beliefs about how a church should feel and how it should be. And this friend of mine has totally different views about that as far as liturgy, and tradition, and and so our church services look way different. We have some different theological perspectives. Now, if you sit here and you hear me teach, I will teach those convictions, and I will defend them with Scripture, and I'll be passionate about it. But then if you go listen to him, he's going to teach his positions, teach them from Scripture, be passionate about them, and some of the followers might one day get this impression that we're at odds with one another. Well, actually, we're not. In fact, we met last week, and we have these sweet times of fellowship where it's like, how can I pray for you? What's God doing in your life? And we have amazing fellowship because what we know is there are, there's a difference between foundational theology issues and other stuff that we have all, all eternity to figure out. You know, And what I know about this friend of mine who's this Anglican priest is he loves the gospel, he loves Jesus, and he wants more than anything else for God to use him. And we have those things in common. So when we get together, we can have fun talking about whether babies should be baptized or not. We can have fun talking about the importance of liturgy in the church and all those things. But when it comes down to it, it's like, man, what is God doing in your life? And how can I be praying for you? And here's what I'm sure: Can I get some prayer for this? And so there's a difference there. And we see that here. Even though they're going to confront Paul on this kind of issue, how his ministry and his calling and his context is causing problems for them in Jerusalem, before any of that happens, we see that they receive him gladly, and it's just so important that we understand that to Jesus, the most important thing is that we love one another, that we love the church, that even if we have differences, that even if there are Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and United Methodists and all sorts, you know, Seventh-day Adventists, all sorts of different denominations, there are hills that are worth dying on and there are hills that are not worth dying on. And one of the main hills worth dying on is the gospel. The, the pure gospel that's summarized by saying we are all saved by faith, by grace through faith. Anybody who's saved is not saved by works, but by faith. That is the fundamental thing of the gospel. God did the work. God sent his son. Christ died for us. And it's only because of that death that our sins are paid for. And it's only because of him that if we believe in him, we get to go to heaven for eternity and not hell. And that's the foundational thing that if you are a Christian, you must believe. And no matter what denomination you are, whether you're a Presbyterian because you believe in a certain kind of church government, or you're a Methodist because of this, or you're a Baptist because of that, all those other things are secondary, very important, but you die on hills like a gospel, you don't die on hills like should babies be baptized. Like if you're in this church and you were baptized as a baby, even though I don't believe in infant baptism, I wouldn't ask you to do it again. You can have your own conviction and we can still love God together because that isn't a hill to die on. It's a difference. So important that we understand that. So what we're going to see here that the church tries to do that. They try to, to unite and show unity and then kind of still work out this, this problem they're having now. So in verse 18, the following day, Paul went into James. And all the elders were present. And after he greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. So see, isn't that neat? We're going to see in a second that there's this conflict they have to talk about. They've got to kind of confront Paul on some things. There's been some headaches that Paul's caused from his ministry. But before that, they're listening to what Paul's doing in these Gentile places. And everyone's getting saved, and the Holy Spirit's falling on them, and they're speaking in tongues, and God's doing miracles. And they're just glorifying God. They're like, thank God. And it reminds me again, like, so I, I'm part of this really unique fellowship in Kannapolis. I don't, have, I don't want to keep bragging, but I mean, just imagine this, okay? You get a Baptist. You get a, you get a Catholic. You get a United Methodist. You get an Anglican. And then you've got me. And we're sitting together, and they say, hey, how's your ministry going? And I'm like, hey, you know, a couple more people came. And all of them do this. Oh, praise God! Can you imagine different denominations praising God like that? when your ministry succeeds, it's phenomenal. Like a few years back, we got to give away all these bikes in, in, a, in the lock mill housing area. And Pastor Keith from Eva Drive Baptist gave me those bikes. His church wasn't using them. He's like, hey, can I bless your ministry? It's like we're, we see that there's differences and we're not the same church for a reason, but it's still like, how can I help you? How can I pray for you? And even if we have this, like for example, I feel called to not get paid by the church. I feel called to work. That doesn't mean it's wrong for pastors to get paid by a church. So when my pastor friend tells me I'm struggling because numbers are down and so money's down and I can't really make my salary, and I'm like, I'm thinking, how, how can I help? I'm not thinking, well, see, you should have gotten a regular job like me, dude. You know, you don't judge someone else when you've got a specific calling. There's is different than yours. You can still love them. The, the, the hills to die on are the gospel hills. Stuff like that is like, I've got my calling. I'm ministering to a certain context. And we can still praise God for the victories that happen in the churches. Like when my friend Josh tells me that his church is growing, I'm like, praise God for that. I would never want to be part of it, but praise God for it, you know. I don't want to be part of a liturgical church. That's just not me, but people are there. They're growing Christ. Praise God for that. And we should be mature enough as Christians to have friendships like that with people that are from different denominations where you can discuss these differences, but also discuss your similarities, So they glorified God. When they see of Paul's success that he's having in these Gentile nations, they're praising God for that. And now here comes the the challenging part. At the end of verse 20, they say, You see, brother calling them brother, you see how many thousands there are among the Jews of those that have believed. And they're all zealous for the law. Now here comes the problem. And they've been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Moses telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. So this is a problem for the Jews. Because in the Jews' mind, Christianity is still the Jewish religion. Right? Jesus was a Jew. He came to the Jews. He's the Messiah prophesied from the Jewish scriptures. He's the fulfillment of the Jewish religion. Christianity is a Jewish religion. And so for Paul to be out there saying, forsake Moses, forsake the law, That's confusing for them. And what they're saying is actually true for the most part. Paul actually is saying these things for the most part, at least half-truth. And see, they, they know this because he already wrote to Rome. And what the church did back then was they would copy letters and distribute them. So it's very likely that Jerusalem might have already gotten a copy of this letter he wrote to Rome. And that letter is crazy. So he writes to Rome, and here's what's going on in Rome. Rome is this huge city, obviously, the Roman Empire. And in this huge city, there are tons of Jews and tons of Gentiles that have all gotten saved within one church. And they're struggling with this question. What role does the Old Testament law have for a Christian? I mean, it says don't kill. So do I still need to not kill today? But then it says... You know, don't shave your sideburns, or it says, you know, all these sacrificial things, or circumcise your kids. Like, how much of that applies to to Christianity, and they're wrestling through this. And Paul, there's no one better than Paul to answer this question. He is qualified more than any other apostle to answer this question, because not only did he walk with Christ and he knew Christ, but he was a Pharisee. He was trained to be a Pharisee, an expert of the experts, the best of the best of Jewish theology so he knew his scripture he didn't walk with christ while alive like they did but he met christ later on the road in the vision and became became an apostle in a different kind of circumstance but he knew jewish theology so if there was any apostle who could search the old testament scriptures and figure out how does this work for christianity now it was paul and he says things like this all of you jews even if you're christians you can't judge those who don't follow the law because you can't even keep the law He just calls them on it. You don't need to keep the law. Why are you going to judge a Gentile for not keeping the law? Then he says, now, if you could keep the law, you could get saved by it. If you could be perfect and never sin, you'd be saved. But then he says, but everybody sins. Your Old Testament says that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of you have made it. So you who keep the law, just know that law can't save you. So then he says to them, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, the only thing that can save you is faith. And he gives examples of people like Abraham, who's considered righteous by faith before he's even done the deeds that God asked him to do later. And he says, basically, you who keep the law, just be aware you're not going to get saved by this. You can't get saved by your words. There's nothing you can do to get saved. You have to just believe, and it's by faith. So he lays this whole thing out, but then he still says, but the law is good for a couple of reasons. Number one, it shows us our sin. It shows us our need for a Savior. Then he says, also, the Jews are important. They're an important part of the history of the church. They're the ones who got us to the present point. They're the one who preserved these truths and carried these through these truths through all these crazy, horrendous, persecuting times. It's important. So he's saying, if you're a Jew, great, more power to you. Praise God. If you want to keep following the law, praise God, that's fine. Just know that it's faith that saves you. And then he says in Romans, but don't you, tar- don't you dare try to put that burden on Gentiles. And he says things like, some of you consider one day more important than other days. Some of you don't consider any days. Like, just be be convinced in your own mind. And the most important thing, getting toward like the end of Romans is like, love one another. Don't do things to be a burden to one another. Don't stumble one another. Be sacrificial towards one another. Love each other. Don't allow these differences. Don't put burdens on the Gentiles. They're not part of your history. They don't need to get circumcised. So he said those things. And I mean, that's all of Romans. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I'm summarizing all the Romans for you. you got to find the verses later. Um, but, so it's a very long and complex book, and Paul does a great job going through all of that. It's, it's excellent, but it's difficult to understand. It would be easy to imagine that when that letter gets back to Jerusalem, someone reads it and goes, look what he's saying to the Gentiles. The law's not even important. Look what he wrote right here. And it kind of gets around that Paul's talking bad about the law. And so this is a hard thing for them to handle. And especially since the Jews grew up hating Gentiles and thinking that Gentiles were dirty and filthy and like if you even walked on soil that was owned by a Gentile, you had to like bathe and so you couldn't go into the temple. Like they did not like Gentiles. And so now they're saved, but they're Jews. And the Jews aren't having to deal with this, right? They're living in Jerusalem among Jews. They're saved now. They haven't had to really wrestle much with what is the role of the gospel among Gentiles? It's not a context they've had to deal with. Meanwhile, Paul's out there in this context, totally wrestling with solving it, theologically precise, just like really working through this stuff. But it gets back to them, and they're kind of confused by it. So it's kind of caused this caused this, it's, this issue. And so they ask the question... What can we have done about this? Paul, we know you. We know you were a Pharisee. We know you love the Jews. We know you wrote in Romans that you'd give up your own salvation to save the Jews if, you, if that was even possible. We know you love the law. So how do we resolve this? And they come up with this idea. So let's read that together again. In verse 22, they say, So, Paul, what's to be done? They'll know you have come. And implication there, meaning they're going to want to arrest you or put you to death because you're talking bad about them. Therefore, this is what we tell you to do. We have four men who are under a vow. Why don't you take them and purify yourself with them, and then even pay their expenses so they can shave their heads, and then all will know there's nothing to any of this thing, and that you like the law too, basically is what they're saying there. But concerning the Gentiles, I believe, we've already talked about that. We've decided that this is all that we're going to put on them. So they're agreeing with Paul that, yeah, we're not going to put all these burdens on the Gentiles. We understand that. We've already handled that. That was the whole council in Jerusalem, Acts 15. If you want to look back to that, you can look at that. They basically already resolved this. Gentiles don't need to follow the law. There's a whole council about it. So, like, yeah, we already solved that. We know that. But while you're here in Jerusalem, why don't you do something to show that you're not against Jews who still want to be zealous for the law? Now, I can imagine there's some problems for Paul with this. I can think of at least four things that might really be a problem for Paul with this suggestion. Number one, Paul's an apostle. And from all that we see in Scripture, all the apostles had equal rank. So who's James to tell Paul what to do? Who are these elders to tell Paul what to do? He knows what he's called to do. He knows he's preaching the truth. He doesn't need to answer to anybody. So pride could have been a stumbling block. I would have had a problem with that. Here I am saving thousands coming to Christ. They come back to Jerusalem. They want me to like pay for some guys to get their heads shaved. Like do you, do you just hear what I just did out in the Gentile land saving thousands of people? You want me to pay for them to shave their heads? Like no, I'm an apostle. I'm, I'm free of all that. That could have been one, hurt, one hurdle. The second thing is Paul could have argued successfully about his views and won the argument because he was correct. That's what all of Romans is. He could have done all that and said, therefore, I don't need to do this. Why don't you just all teach your people better? Just teach them the truth. This is the truth. Just teach them. I, I shouldn't have to do this for you. You just teach them. He could have done that. Third, and this is maybe even more important, Paul might have been concerned that it might have hurt his message to do this. It might have been considered inconsistent among the Gentiles. He's now a leader a forerunner, an example, the apostle of all the Gentiles, he's been ministering among all of them for years saying you don't need to follow these laws, just follow Christ. And then they're going to hear that he goes back to Jerusalem and he's following the law again like he hasn't among them for all those years and except for that one time when he took a vow and there wasn't much said about it. And now he's like paying for these guys to do the thing. Is that going to seem inconsistent? Is it going to hurt his message? Is it going to hurt his street cred among the Gentiles? That's a serious kind of issue, you know? Like, I have a certain context here, and I preach a certain thing here, and I'm talking about a certain way of ministry here, and then if I have a pastor friend of mine who's full-time ministry, and he's struggling, and I want to give him money, is that being inconsistent because I don't believe in that for my calling? Is that going to, like, affect? You know, like, so when you're serving in a certain context, and then you're brought outside of that context, and you're ministering to somebody different, then it kind of changes how you do certain things. That is a legitimate question. Is this going to affect my reputation among those that I'm serving, that I'm called to serve? So that could have been a hurdle for him. The fourth and biggest problem with this suggestion is Paul knew it wouldn't work. Every city along the way, it said, they've been telling him, when you go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you. So James and I are like, hey, listen, they're kind of mad at you here. They kind of want to arrest you. So why don't you do this? Paul could have said no, because it's not going to matter anyway. I'm going to get arrested. God's told me I'm going to get arrested, so I don't need to do this. That's legitimate. Like, why, is, why even consider it? It's not going to work. But instead, what does Paul do? In verse 26, Paul took the men the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until a sacrifice was offered for each of them, and then he began to preach that none of this was necessary for the kingdom work and for salvation. Just kidding, that, that part wasn't in there. He just did it! And this is a real picture of love and humility. What we know about Paul is that Paul is primarily concerned with one thing, and that is the gospel. And that's why I've been reminded the last couple of weeks, in multiple conversations, people keep reminding me this verse that says, you know, Paul, I think it's either Philippians or Colossians where Paul says, Some preach Christ through vainglory or conceit, trying to add a burden to my chains, but some for honesty. But either way, I praise God that he's being preached. Even if those who are preaching him are preaching for bad motives, I just praise God that the gospel is getting out there. Paul is all about the gospel. And he's again demonstrating his willingness to do whatever it takes for the name of Christ. Right now, he's not in a Gentile city. He's in Jerusalem. He's among the Jews. That's the context. And the gospel is lived out somewhat differently depending on where you live and who you're serving to. So Paul is in Jerusalem now, and he's more interested in what needs to be done in order for the gospel to get further and make more progress in Jerusalem at this moment. And he realizes they're right. Among the Gentiles, what I'm saying is right. They don't need to follow the law. But for a Jew who's grown up as a Jew and wants to still follow those laws, as long as he can see how that points to Christ, as long as he sees that he's not doing it for forgiveness, as long as he recognizes the gospel, but he still wants to be part of these traditions, I need to support that and show them that God is with that. And as long as, you know, like the book of Hebrews, how it all points to Christ, so that he's more interested in that. And I know this is Paul's heart. I'm not just reading into the text because Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verses 19 through 24, he says this, For even though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law, though not bringing myself under the law, So that I might win those who are under the law. So see what he said there? He's like, to those who are under the law, I became like like them, but I'm not under the law. I still recognize that it's faith that saves me, but I became like them to win them. And to those that are without the law, as without the law, though not being without it, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I might by all means save some. See his heart there? I just want to save some. I don't want to cause any roadblocks. I don't want to be a burden. I just want to win more people to Christ. So verse verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. See, I'm not making this up. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Again, the title, Run to Win. So I want to say one more thing about this because I was going to end here until last night. This whole idea of becoming all things to all people makes sense until you see the other side of this. I got to go to a concert last night and um, there are some Christian bands there, some non-Christian bands there. I always like to support the Christian bands that are out there really doing the... there aren't that many. There are a lot of Christian bands that say they're Christian, they they live like the world, act like the world, and have long years past, never been in church, never been accountable to anybody, just on the road touring. But there are some bands that are really trying to further the gospel by being lights in these different scenes, and so I like to go and support them. One band I didn't know very well, but I know the record label they used to be on. And the record label is very on fire, very passionate for God. I know the owners, they love God. They grew up in my church. These people are amazing people. So this band, I was excited to see this band. And I get there and like literally the as their set starts, the singer opens up with, Let's get this FN thing started. And me and Sam go, What? I mean I go, what? Like we were all expected to get this Christian thing. And throughout the entire thing he was dropping F-bombs and dropping the SH word the whole way through, nothing said about God, nothing said about Jesus. All the lyrics seem to be about like just persevering through hard, the typical hardcore stuff, like just hard times and being a thug and like making it. Like, And so I wanted to mention that too because that isn't what Paul means when he says be all things to all people. That band, if they think they're a Christian band, being evangelistic by being like the world, they are going against the gospel by doing that. So I want to tell you what the difference is. When Paul says, I'm being all things to all people, what he's doing is giving up liberties to not stumble somebody. Not taking on liberties to be cool with the world. And I want you to know that difference. This band is taking on liberties by being profane, by disobeying the Bible that says, don't let unwholesome things come out of your mouth. They're doing that to appear cool to the world, thinking that somehow by being cool to the world wins people to the gospel. It doesn't. All it does is show them you're just like them, so why should they want to be like you? Why should I follow Christ if you're already just like me? That isn't what Paul means. What Paul says here is he gives up liberties to win people. He's not adding more liberties. He's not putting himself into addictions. He's not out there drinking and getting drunk and partying and cussing with a storm to be accepted by the world. He's not cheating on his taxes to to win tax collectors to the gospel. Like, do you get it? What he's doing instead is saying, among the Jews, I will act like a Jew and give up my liberty. I don't need to do this anymore. I don't need to be a Jew anymore. I know that I'm saved by faith, but among the Jews, I will live like them to not offend them so that I can win them. And then among the Gentiles... I'm not going to live like a Jew because among the Gentiles, that would get in the way of them getting saved. So the issue when it says being all things to all people is more about what am I willing to give up about my preference in order to love somebody else? Being all things to all people doesn't mean we compromise our holiness or our beliefs or our convictions in order to be accepted by the world. So that's the difference. And Paul talks about it often. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians and other places he talks about this. Like even the issue of um, eating meat sacrificed to idols. That was fine. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, look, we know those idols aren't real. So the meat couldn't have been defiled by being offered to idols that don't exist. The idols don't exist to defile them. So if you want to eat the meat, fine. But if you live among Jews that are offended by that, don't do it. Don't offend people. Don't use your liberty To offend somebody else. So that's what Paul's heart is. And this church, our church, and the church of God as a whole, could benefit from having this heart towards the rest of the church. Even though we are free, we should willingly become slaves to all people so that we can win more to Christ. And it's sometimes not very comfortable. Sometimes God brings people, actually, most of the time, God will bring people into your life that He wants to bless for some reason He sees something in you he wants them to to be blessed by, but there's going to be some sort of friction there because the enemy doesn't like that, and so it might be uncomfortable. And the question you should ask yourself is, God brings someone into your life that you're like, okay, how do I, you know, ask yourself, what can I give up of my preference to help that person? What can I sacrifice and get out of the way so that the gospel can be lived in me and through me to that person? That's a, a better question than, how can I make that person more like me? How can I help them to rise to my level? How can I get them to do things that make me more comfortable? The question is, what can I do? What can I give up so that the gospel can win these people? All things to win some. So to close, in your walk with Jesus, run like somebody who wants to win. Don't run like somebody who doesn't care. It's not like P.E. where you've got to run a lap, but no one's even watching, so you're just going to stay in the back and walk with your friends and text on your phone while you're walking because, oh, who cares? This is a real race, and we want to win. These songs we sing today are so great. Like, I mean, sorry, I love this stuff. Phil Wickham, like, I want to hear you say well done. I want to be welcomed in. I want to feel your love like sunshine on my resurrected skin. They're like, when well, I'm going in heaven, I want to hear this music playing in the trumpet sound, and I want to hear you call my name, and so I'm going to run and I'm not going to quit. I love that line. Chasing after your heart, just like David did. I'll come running through the gates, looking to your face. I can hardly wait until you carry my soul, carry my soul away. And this whole idea of running through the gates, I never having this vision one time. I'm not going to say it's a vision from God. I was just thinking about it. I was thinking about my walk with Christ as a battle. Because we're all soldiers and we're marching the whole you know these old Christian songs. do we're a Christian soldier? But I was thinking about how we're in this spiritual battle and we're all going to get to heaven one day. But think about what soldiers look like when the battle's won. They're not all wearing like new uniforms and you know beer bellies and like cigars out of their mouth and driving like Lexus, like luxury lifestyle. Like they're it's rough, you know. Like some guys might have made it. And some guys are getting carried by their friends, and their legs are gone. They're getting carried to the finish line. And I was like, God, that's probably going to be me. Like, if I make it at all, I'm going to be that guy who's lost some limbs along the way because I struggle all the time. And so this image of, like, I just want to run through this guy. I want to hear you call my name. I want to hear well done. Like, God, even if I am, like, limbless, and they're carrying me on a bed into heaven, and I barely, barely made it, I just want to keep running and I want to keep going and I want to see your face and I want to get there no matter what happens, no matter how hard it gets. And so run like someone who wants to win and ask yourself with the people in your life, what can I give up in order to show God's love to this person? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and thank you for the fact that it occurs to me that this is what mothers do all the time for their kids, giving up things to show their kids love and comfort and make them feel safe and protected and nurtured as they grow. I pray that today that all the mothers here would feel loved and appreciated. And I pray that all of us, God, we would learn from the, from the example of Paul who had so much theology, had so much experience, had such credibility and such a legacy of thousands coming to Christ who still willingly gave up his liberty to win even a couple more. Thank you, God, for him and his example. Help us to be like that in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, before all time, now and forever. Amen.